Interested in getting an MFA in fiction, nonfiction, or poetry? Check out the University of Minnesota's fully funded three-year MFA program in the vibrant writing community of the Twin Cities. Students work with core faculty Douglas Kearney, Catherine Nuremberger, Peter Campion, Kim Todd, Ray Gonzalez, Julie Schumacher, and wait a minute, Vivi Ganeshananthan? This must be some kind of hoax. I've heard of this person. (laughs) (laughs) They also have the opportunity to work with visiting writers, including recently Natalie Diaz, somebody I've also heard of, Danielle Evans, somebody who's been on this podcast, and Rivka Galchin. Graduates have won major awards, launched literary organizations, and written New York Times bestsellers. The application deadline for fall is December 1st. Minnesota, three genres, three years, fully funded. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Sugi's editor on the podcast. And I'm Wit's editor on the podcast <laughs> because we're co-hosts to edit each other. Hey, wait, so what are your principles of editing me? Well, the first thing, you've already edited me today because you reminded me that this is season three, episode one, not season two, episode 27. So I'm glad Fact we got check. that figured out. Fact check. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I take all your interviewing takes out of the script. What? What are those? All right. I actually want to know what that is. What what does that mean? This seems like a good place for you to read. Oh. (laughs) Do I always say that? You do. You do. I try to get you to finish sentences and start the same and like have them... Oops. And I'm supposed to turn all those sounds off. That's supposed to be edited out. That didn't work. This is rough draft. Rough draft, man. (laughs) All right. Look, it's very personal editing. Sugi and I managed to do it for each other, not without fighting at times. Um, You do need detachment. You do need professionalism. But that is why we have brought in some other editors to talk to us about the craft of editing on this episode. Later in the show, we're going to talk to Brian Birnbaum and Katie Rainey of Dead Rabbits Books, who will talk about starting their own press, editing, and their own writing. But first, we're joined by Rakesh Satyal. Rakesh is a novelist and an editor, and he's the author of the Lambda Award-winning Blue Boy, which is being made into a movie, and also No One Can Pronounce My Name, the best book title of all time, which came out in paperback last year. And he's also a senior editor at Atria Books. He began his career in publishing as an intern at Random House and has worked with writers from Clive Barker and Tori Amos to Paolo Calho and Paul Rudnick. Rakesh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big Lit Hub fan, so you you, you have the right audience here. <laughs> <laughs> we do we do get to hear from the publishers because via uh, piles and piles of of uh, uh, bubble wrapped packages that arrive at our various homes. <laughs> You're lucky if they're bubble wrapped and not that crazy. Um, what are those things called with the crazy uh, shredded paper in them that go everywhere? Like oh yeah, or, yeah, 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 yeah. Those are. Those are the scourge, scourge of yeah. publishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might as well yeah. mail me a book with. You might as well mail me a book wrapped in glitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's. I'm more partial to that that, that <laughs> approach. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, you and I, I think went through the same creative writing program at Princeton. Uh, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. It's such a it's a wonderful program. I loved it there. Who was there when you were there? 
I so I took courses. My first uh, course is actually a poetry course with Paul Muldoon, uh, oh, and then great. I was in a uh, fiction workshop with Joyce Carol Oates, who actually, uh, um, fittingly enough, was the first person who recommended to me that I should look for a job in publishing because um, I had been in her workshop, and she kind of kept me after class one day and said, "You know, you give very pointed feedback in workshop. Have you thought about?" Um, book publishing, and of course, I had that had not even occurred to me. Uh, so I was in her class, and then I took uh, a, a session with Evan White, who's been a Ugh. kind of dear friend and wonderful mentor. And then uh, my yeah, my my thesis advisors uh, again, quite fittingly, um, my first thesis advisor because um, I had one per semester. Uh, I was writing a novel. It was Lynn Tillman, the wonderful writer Lynn Tillman, mm-hmm. and and then my my second advisor was David Ebershoff, who. Whom I think Edmund kind of paired us together because he knew both as a writer, um, David, and then especially as someone who worked in publishing. Yeah. David was a kind of legendary editor who just a couple of years ago stepped away from Random House to focus on writing full time. But but yeah, they, it was an amazing program. And they were the perfect instructors for me to have. And actually, I should add another instructor I had who was incredibly helpful was A.J. Burdell, uh, who was there when I was there. So who, who, were the, who were the people you studied with when you were there? Well, it was different. I mean, Paul yeah. uh, was there. I started as a poet, so I studied with Jim Richardson, who was there probably. Oh, yeah, there, probably. Yep. And, um, yep. Yep. and Joyce was there, and Russell Banks was there, and Russell was my thesis uh-huh. advisor. But I took most of my classes with Joyce and Russell. Um, wow. And, yeah. and then I went back later and did a, did a hotter fellowship and taught there for a little bit when, you know, Jeff Eugenides and, and, and Chang Ray Lee and Tracy K. Smith and other terrific writers were there. So it's, it's always a, it's just a place that I have good feelings about. That's that's wonderful. Yeah, I actually worked my work study job when I was an undergrad was working for the human the Council of the Humanities, which was in charge of that fellowship. So that's um, yeah, that's and I mean, and I met Edmund that yeah. way. He wasn't on faculty when I was there, but when I went back later as an as an adult, uh, it was fantastic to get to be friends with him. He is super absolutely super good person. Uh, anyway, all right. So before, we can't do this all all night. Um, <laughs> you began by an editor by interning at Random House. That's the kind of job, at, at, I guess, on Joyce's very. Uh, Appreciate suggestion. It's the kind of job some of my students would kill for. Can you talk a little bit about how you got that job and your path through publishing to where you are now? Yeah, so I I applied for an internship at Random House. And I think part of the reason why I ended up getting the job is because I went in and I didn't presume to actually know what the job was because it is very much on-site experience. So what I said to the editor when I was interviewing was, you know, I don't exactly know how this job works, but I know I have strong communication skills, you know, I'm a strong writer, I care deeply about books, I read often, and I, I, I have a sense of what is being published. And I think that helped a great deal because it didn't, again, presume to say that I knew the ins and outs of the job. So I, I interned for what was then called the Doubleday Broadway Publishing Group. Um, so Broadway is now a kind of the paperback imprint of Crown, which mm-hmm. is a different division of Random House, and Doubleday is now cut off Doubleday. So um, the editor I worked for that summer is this legendary, wonderful editor Jerry Howard, who um, has been uh, is just has just been behind some of the you know biggest books in publishing. About one of the more notable publications he's had in his his career. Uh, more recently was A Little Life, so he was Hanya's editor. Oh, wow. um, That's cool. So he, um, but he, uh, so I worked for him that summer, and then it was just. It just so happened that when I was graduating from college, his assistant at the time was leaving. And so I actually started working in publishing the Monday after I graduated, oh, uh, wow. right after I graduated. And, wow. and, and it, was, it was actually really beneficial that that was the case because it just made me have to jump in and 
learn the ropes and and really start working. And I, you know, he was an amazing mentor. He's a brilliant editor. And and one of the things that's lucky, sort of when, as you noted about a job like that, is that especially when you're dealing with somebody who's been in publishing for that long, who's very well connected, you learn who everybody is very quickly, which is a really key part of the process, knowing who the agents are, knowing who, you know, who the editors are, who's sort of leading the discussion. And so I had that experience very early on. And in fact, um, uh, you know, I acquired my first book mere months after beginning that job under tutelage. <laughs> oh that, that's gosh. a very rare, that's a very rare uh, occurrence. And so it's a very motivated worked, Princeton kid yes. thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> so I worked there for about four and a half years. And then I moved to uh, HarperCollins, where I worked, I acquired for both the Harper hardcover list and the Harper perennial paperback list. And I was there for about another four and a half years. Um, then I did that thing that a lot of people wonder about, which is that I spent three years not in book publishing. Um, it's a it's a funny story. I, I read an article in The New Yorker in the fall of 2011 about a company based in Sausalito that was the first of its kind. It was a, it was a boutique firm that specialized in naming. And I worked uh, for that company and um, lo and behold, is the way the world works, I met my now husband, who ironically enough worked in book publishing, even though I did not at that time. Um, and then he and I came back to New York um, and he transferred to uh, his publishing company's New Jersey office. And I worked for a branding firm here in New York again. And then I really missed working with authors. Uh, that was that's that's something I, I was very crucial creatively fulfilled in that job in terms of naming, but I did realize how much I loved working with authors. So then I joined Atria in, um, I think it was February of 2015, and I've been there since then. So that's my kind of long-winded narrative about my publishing job. I was going to say, I really appreciated your your Lit Hub piece about kind of loneliness and publishing and that that stint out of it. And um, and we'll link to that in our show notes. I also just, you know, listening to this story, I'm thinking about so many of the students that I've had who ask me, you know, how do, how do I get to be an intern at Random House? And all of the ways that your experience was, it seems unusual. It, w- it was. I mean, I think, you know, I don't think I realized at that point in time how competitive it actually was, which probably absented some of the anxiety that would have conditioned my behavior at sure, that point. So sure. I, I think it was it, it, it that helped in a way. Um, and I think, you know, when I, you know, when I've interviewed people to work for me, when I've interviewed assistants at my job, I mean, you know, we are, we're looking for a kind of two pronged approach, which is people who are incredibly organized and very conscientious about their work and really understand that the day-to-day requires a great deal of organization and responsibility and accountability and then a true passion for books. I mean, that that can't be minimized in that discussion because you have to kind of live and breathe books and you have to be somebody who's enthusiastic about reading because reading is not this thing that happens in a vacuum. You're reading certain books and opining about them because of the way in which they're published, frankly, like the, the, what what is given value and what is then not given value that sh- should be given value, and how you use your discernment to to distinguish those things. So, um, you know, it is abnormal in certain respects, and yet I think my enthusiasm for writing and reading and the and publishing in general helped close that discussion for what I didn't know at that point in time. Mm-hmm. The other thing you'd have to do, in which my students don't know that well. And which I'd like you to sort of like give us a little tiny precy on, or maybe it can't be tiny, is like, you know, the landscape of what New York publishing is now. What is the big five or big six? What are the major houses? 
What are their personalities? You know, publishing has cha- changes all the time. I mean, my first book was bought by Avon, which doesn't mm-hmm, exist anymore, mm-hmm. really, or was was purchased um, by I forget who, maybe HarperCollins. Um, and so, uh, could you just sort of give us an insider's view on the way that you see the landscape of New York publishing right now? Well, well, the, the, to, to be clear, the, the, that's a that's a relevant comment you just made, which is that it's not just New York publishing anymore. And Sugi, it's actually very relevant too, because Minneapolis, for example, yeah. is a place where there's really wonderful publishing, and the, the kind of gold standard there is Grey Wolf, um, and, and the brilliant, brilliant Fiona McRae who runs Grey Wolf. So, I, you know, I. It has been exciting, you know, in the past 10 years or so in particular to see how well these prominent indie presses have done. I'm often quite vocal about the fact that I think in the past few years, you know, the best fiction in my view is, is, and that's found its audience, is fiction by women of color. That there's been more of it, there's more, um, there's more visibility, and that, uh, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of the books that are coming out are people from historically marginalized backgrounds who finally have a larger platform and or who are using it, and that and that publishers generally are, are giving more of a voice um, to those to those writers than they had in the past. I have a follow up to that, which is yeah. just that you know thinking about. So you began as an intern at Random House in I think what two thousand and one, and you know you're talking about writers breaking through, which I think is true and great. I'm curious about. I think you know just so many of us like. What about editors breaking through? I'm just thinking about a particular former student of mine who's in New York and thinking about, um, you know, when I've I've been fortunate to work with great editors, um, it does seem like most of the people working in publishing are from, you know, you're talking about those, um, you know, having gone to a a prominent school and and sort of being able to parse um, certain kinds of code about what matters and to whom. And in what ways is editing becoming more accessible? I mean, is it? Um, the, the idea of pursuing the vocation as editor or the idea yeah, of the exactly. process of editing? Um, you know, I, well, we've talked a lot about I, the pod. Just to give you some background, we've had a number yeah, sure. of issues that talk about the unbearable whiteness of publishing on, on mm-hmm, this particular mm-hmm. podcast. Um, and one of the reasons that we, you know, invited you is we is that you're, you know, you would be someone who could speak to that, and maybe if it's changing or how how it feels like to be a writer of color and editor of color in that in that Yeah, I mean, I I have to say one of the things that was very um, enticing to me when I came back into publishing, especially at Atria at that time, was that there was such a diverse publishing staff, and some of my like very brilliant colleagues. I mean, from Johanna Castillo to Jante Kupahia to Todd Hunter, to the amazing Don Davis, who's still a mentor of mine, who's still in the SNS building. I mean, th- there were there were people who um, kind of were paving the way and are still paving the way. Um, you know, I do think there is a more of a concerted effort to have that represent- representation within publishing. And I would venture to say, I mean, I... I, I, I I I think slash hope there's more of an effort to to Suki as you mentioned to, to find people who are not from your typical schools and backgrounds who have some more of a of, of a, um, a kind of novel approach to the way in which they're in publishing. Um, I think you know I think what's helped is that there's greater attention to this very issue and that mm-hmm. I I think it's bearing fruit. Like I think that there are writers and books that are finding a certain audience that didn't necessarily even five years ago because of that very issue. I mean, one thing I've said often, which, which I think is still true is that a lot of the groundbreaking work within the industry often happens at the YA level or the children's level because they, oh, they, they, there's a great diversity of, 
voices and authors. And it, it, it kind of makes sense too that that's that's dovetailed with social media presence. That there there are people who are there are younger people especially who are finding an audience on their writers that they really imagine they're being very vocal about it and they're creating a groundswell of enthusiasm there. So I, you know, I think that's where a lot of it happens. All right. So my job is to, is to insist on answering the dumb questions and my one, I still (laughs) want to have answered this. Like, I'm just going to go through this. You said Atria under the house, uh, under, you know, the umbrella of SNS, but you mean Simon and Schuster, right? Correct. Correct. So there's Simon and Schuster, there's Random House there's and Penguin is now under the Random House banner. Uh, they're together, you know, because they okay. merged. So, so it's Penguin and Random House, House yeah, have right, merged. Kanaf right. is are they still standalone? I don't actually know. No, they're within the so they're they're within Penguin PRH within Penguin Random House. So they're House. still so they all in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. Simon Schuster stands alone, I guess. Uh, there's there's the big Penguin Random House Kanaf thing all bundled together. <laughs> Macmillan, which has uh-huh. my publisher for our Strauss and Giroux underneath there wing along mm-hmm. with many other things mm-hmm. and then who else of the major houses uh, what am i missing uh, norton. so you have norton you have harper collins um you i, I guess the, I, I think technically the uh the, the big i should know off the top of my head who the exact big five are but yeah those are then you have you know um uh well, that's Grove, five which is listed. yeah 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 but um but yeah i mean you have it, it, it's uh, those are the kind of ones that are based in Europe. But then, like, yeah, obviously, like we're saying, there are places like Grey Wolf. There are places like Melville House. There are places like you know, there there, there are other publishers. Um, there's Kensington, for example, who published my first novel. Like they're independent and they're based in New York. No, we love um, we so, love all of those. Yeah. We I appreciate you bringing those up. But we also are having an independent press on for the second half of the show. So we're gonna. Uh-huh, yes. you're we're yeah. here to talk to you about the big boys, and yeah. and girls. You know. <laughs> yeah. So yes, those are, those are the bigger those are the bigger ones. Um, I'm trying to think if I've left anything out of that Houghton equation. Houghton Mifflin think, are they still? Oh, H M H. Yes, uh, yeah. I should I should mention H M H. Um, and so I think I, I should know again. I think if it's P R H, uh, Simon and Schuster, um, H M H, Macmillan, and uh, Harper. I think those did I get all those. Yeah. Those are probably what you would call the big five. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, what's the life cycle of acquiring and publishing a book at Atria these days? Uh, you know, the the process is kind of what it's been, which is that you want to read and you get something in and you want to, you know, I, I work primarily on narrative nonfiction. I do right. literary fiction. But so when you when you're reading narrative nonfiction, you typically get it in on a proposal and you uh, you know, it, it's a kind of, it's, it's two things at once. It's concept and ex- execution. You know, the idea that are you reading about something that feels, uh, you know, p- pressing and timely and, but it's also sort of, it, uh, you know, um, uh, timeless at the same time. And then is, does the writer have the chops to pull it off? Um, and so it, just to give one example, I mean, a book that I bought last year that I'm really excited about is a, um, book called the Eagles of Heart Mountain by a really wonderful writer named Brad Pearson. And the proposal was just fantastic. It was it was a book about a forgotten chapter of American history. Um, the, the author, I think he'd been working on a different story for Outside Magazine when he became aware of this. But he found out um, that the winningest football team in Wyoming's history had been the football team of an internment camp in the 50s in, oh, in Wyoming. And, oh my gosh. and he wrote this incredible proposal about 
that period. And, um, you know, it's, it's a story about internment in America by way of this, you know, this sport. And I, I should be upfront. I'm not a sports person, but the, 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 the compelling, the material was so compelling. Um, and he's such a wonderful writer that it was the kind of project I became very keen on. And that was the kind of book that went to auction because there were a lot of people who were, who were interested in it. So that process was very much, you know, I read it, I was fascinated by it. I shared it with other people. They shared my enthusiasm um, and and we were in a competitive situation in which we got that book. And so, you know, that process. Uh, but wait, know, wait, you, slow you, down and talk about that when you say a competitive. What you mean is an auction, right? I don't, I'm not, I'm yes. not sure that all listeners know what that is. Auctions can happen in uh, roughly in two ways. One is a kind of round robin auction, which is, uh, ed- you know, editors put their initial bids in. It, it proceeds in rounds. Um, they, you know, it goes up depending on the level. Um, and in most cases, the author and the agent reserve the right to go uh, with the, you know, the, the offer and the publisher that they they want best. That, that it's not necessarily just about financial level; it's about compatibility in terms of editor and author, publishing house and author, etc. And then you know somebody emerges victorious from that process. The other way of doing an auction, um, which happens, is the best bids auction, in which the um, you know the, the amount is not. Uh, there, oftentimes, agents use a two-round best bid. So you put your, what you think is your best bid forward, and they give you one more round to improve that offer, and then and then the book gets sold. So, um, so are, it is. It, I'm sorry because I didn't actually know that part. Like in that second round of a best bid, do you know what the other bids are? Or are you having to work in the dark? Uh, you have a general sense. Uh, it depends on the situation. Sometimes you know at least the bottom level of where things are, so you have a chance to improve. But it's it really it's it, again very subjective because it depends on how the project is being sold and how and uh, how people are involved in in buying it. Um, so uh, yeah, so that's so in that case, so that 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 was what would happen. That happened with that book where you know I had a certain level of, of interest and enthusiasm and. Um, and, and that's how we got that book. Fiction is different, as you might imagine, because typically in fiction, you're, the whole book is done. It's written already. Um, you read a full manuscript. Uh, and th- that's why the period of publication for a fiction book is typically shorter than a nonfiction book, because you buy a nonfiction book and then it has to be written. Um, there, there are certain <laughs> cases where, for example, a memoir, uh, in some memoirs are coming as full manuscripts, and then that's different. But you know, you can buy a novel and publish it anywhere from nine to 12 months after you buy it. But a nonfiction book is different because it has to be done it has to be written before you're you're positioning it and and and, uh and and kind of planning its publication so one of the things that i think is a mystery to probably a lot of emerging writers and certainly was a mystery to me um with my first book was you know what happens between the period of time when your book is purchased and when it comes out and right it is a minimum of nine to twelve months and that's interesting because theoretically right you have the whole manuscript why can't the publishing publishing house just whip it out the next month um and so what is the, what involvement as an editor do you have in, you know, first of all, um, like there's editing the book and then there's yeah. also right getting a kind of publicity train going and, and all of that sort of book tour, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what I explain to people is that, you know, I think oftentimes when people imagine an editor, they imagine a copy editor. They imagine like, you know, kind of traditional pencil behind the ear, you know, going line by line and doing that work. The truth is, a book editor within a publishing house is more like a liaison. I mean, there is the editing itself, which typically, to be clear, happens when you're not at work because you're doing that work outside of it because you're dealing with all these other discussions about things that are in the pipeline, logistical discussions about production, and if you're pursuing a project and looking to acquire it or you're having these other discussions. So the editor is very much the liaison um, in the publishing house among the author, the agent, 
uh, the readership eventually, but then all the various departments of sales, publicity, marketing, the editors are the unifying uh, force there because they're advocating for the book and house and having all of those discussions. So at any given day, I could be having you know, a meeting about a, a cover meeting, discussing about a, an artistic direction for a cover. I might be in a meeting, uh, be talking about publicity and marketing for a book and how we're conveying that, that information to the, the author and agent. Um, you know, I might be in, a, in a, uh, pursuing a project to buy it. So it's, it's, it's a lot of different things at once. And so a lot of the work, ironically enough, is not editing. It's, it's <laughs> all the other things that go into uh, setting up the books for success. You know, the editing component of your job is done after hours. And then there's this sort of rumor, right, that um, or myth that editors aren't editing much now. And so if you're seeking representation, you might want to find an agent who will edit you. And so is agenting moving more towards editing? And, and is, that, is that true? Uh, you know, uh, the way I've always looked at this is I, I think the editors don't edit thing is sort of not true. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I have many colleagues and many editors who are my friends and colleagues who who work so hard and are incredibly invested in the creative content of the books. The truth is, you know, a good agent will edit. You know what I mean? Like in most cases, right. agents are, in, are also very invested in the quality of the work. I should say this, I'm literally married to an agent, so I should, I should vouch for him. Uh, but, <laughs> but, like, you, uh, but, you know, uh, the conscientious people doing their work and caring about books are doing that work. You know, and I think, I, I do agree with you that if you find an agent who doesn't work with you on the creative content of your book or edit you at all, that's a bit of a red flag because they should... Now, it's one thing if they tell you they really, really like your work and they can give you exact reasons why they're not editing you because they see value in it, that's perfectly fine. But if they're not having a substantive discussion with you about the quality of work and how to better the quality of your work, that's, that's, that's an area of concern. Editors are hardworking, and they really do put the work in. I mean, I, 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 I can say this as somebody who's been edited as well. My editor on my last book was so fantastic and so perceptive that it made me a better editor. You know, like it was, it was, a, it was really instructive to see somebody doing that work and being so assiduous about it. So, I, I think that myth of people not editing is not quite true, and I think if it happens, it's a rarity. It's not the, it's not the. Um, it's not a, a commonplace. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that I, that you are a writer as well, and because I feel like editing, learning how to edit is an incru incredibly important part of learning how to be a writer. I mean, I, when I am teaching workshops, I say, look, you're going to think that the parts where you're not up for workshop and you're editing other people's stuff are the boring parts of this class, but actually that's where you're going to learn a lot of stuff about mm -hmm, how to be a writer. Mm -hmm. In that context, when you are giving editorial suggestions – um, how do you do it? Do you line edit? Do you write something up? Do you work in track changes? What's your sort of preferred mode of doing editing, or do you have several? Yeah, it's it, it, the approach is different for fiction and nonfiction. I should know because, for example, in nonfiction, because I typically sign up a project and it then has to be written, my, my authors are usually submitting maybe a chapter or a few chapters at a time, and I and I read them through. I can do one of two things. I, I give general feedback because it's a work in progress, and I'm just sort of giving them a, a gut check of where things are going with the understanding that things are going to shift and move as the book comes together. But there are authors, you know, many authors whom I line edit at that stage just to give them that instruction because I can't, can't, kind of can't help myself. And I'm doing that <laughs> in track changes. I used to do it, you know, I used to do it. On, on a hard copy, but I've learned over time how to, to do it on track changes. So I'm setting that work through, and then, you know, when it gets to a final draft stage, then I do another kind of both structural and line edit through the book. 
Um, and I do believe very much in being involved in the line level of the book because I want the books to really kind of shine in that way. Uh, in fiction, it, it's different, as you might imagine, because if you do buy something on a full manuscript, then you are you got it, you know, like you're, you're, you're dealing with the whole thing. And, and, and ideally you have a um, very constructive creative conversation during the acquisitions process with the author so that they know what you're looking to do and what you actually want to be, um, what you want to be changing and, and what might happen. Uh, to, to kind of cite her earlier, Don Davis, who I mentioned, who's just a, an amazing editor and, and inc- just an incredible person. Yeah. I remember being, uh, she, I was pursuing a book kind of with her and we had a conversation. It was a novel and it was with the author. And um, she asked such a simple question that I had not thought to ask, even as a writer, like I had not thought about this before. She said to the, the author, you know, authors often have a sense of what's not working within their books. And I'm curious to hear what you think is not working about your book right now. And it was very telling because the author actually answered the question in a very meaningful, knowing, <laughs> self-knowing way, which actually helped his case because it showed us, okay, there are some things that we want to change and we're not sure how delicate the author is going to be about this. But the fact that he could pinpoint it and then could see a way forward to address it was very heartening, you know, to know that that, like, mm-hmm. that the ability was there because then there are creative things that authors don't pick up on and they don't know how to solve. And that can be its own kind of warning because you think, okay, if I give you this instruction, it's a question of whether or not you're actually going to be able to take it. Um, but yeah, you, you, it's, it's usually a line edit in track changes with an editorial letter that outlines both the larger kind of macro issues that are happening and then the kind of like point by point, page by page thing where I have a query on page 72 about this because, you know, it doesn't track with this thing that happened before, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. I mean, I should say, um, I feel... That was such a great really, answer, by the way. <laughs> that was an amazing answer. That was an amazing answer. I mean, this is so this is so useful. Um, I wish I could go back and listen to this episode like 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> but I think like, yeah, I feel like I the, having a good relationship with your editor is so incredibly valuable. And you were mentioning before that you felt like it had made you a better editor to be edited. And... What were the things that you learned from your, who was your editor and, and what did you learn from yeah. that experience? So I'll, I'll give an example that I've mentioned before. So my editor was Anna DeVries, who is now at St. Martin. She had been at Picador, uh, the hardcover import print of Picador, which is, has gone away, but the paperback imprint is there. But she's now a, a, an executive editor at St. Martin's and she's brilliant. And one of the things, for example, that she, she helped with is in my last book, uh, it's in three parts. And originally the first part it was three long sections. Um, it shifts in perspective. So the first part was in uh, had you know long section in the one kind of voice or, or POV, and then a second long one in the, that POV, and a third long one in the POV. And then when the second part of the book happens, they start getting braided together and moving together, and, and it has a certain pace. And and she gave a comment to me, which I completely knew. She was like, "Why don't you just do that from the beginning? Why are you why are you starting this out with these long swaths of?" Of, of these narratives that aren't kind of dovetailing because it just makes it harder for the reader to keep track of what's going on. And I had this, you know, kind of ridiculous answer. I'm like, no, I want to, like, people to live fully in the world of these <laughs> before you, like, move on forward. 
And she was like, no, you know, you should just do that from the beginning. And I did. And of course it was the right decision. You know, so that's an idea of a structural change that happened. Um, then, you know, then she just on the line level was very perceptive. Like there, like if a thing went on a beat too long, she would tell me so. And, and these are things I'm trying to be mindful of as a writer, too, when I'm, I'm revising myself. But, you know, there are just some things like your editor is very helpful for those like kill your doll, darlings moments, obviously, where like you're steadfastly, stubbornly holding to something just because you like it and it just doesn't belong there. And having the sounding board to be like, you're being ridiculous, just get rid of it. It's very helpful because you just need that extra push sometimes to, to, to do that. So, but you know, one thing I have to say, like this is where having the double perspective of being writer and editor helps. When I, um, when I got her edits, I just said to myself, I am creating a document and I'm in this document, I'm just taking all of the edits. I'm just making them. I'm going to take them all and I'm going to see what I have there. If there's something outstanding that I don't agree with or that's something I feel like is missing after that process, then maybe I'll know. But the truth was she was generally, she was right about everything. There was one very short, short section that she suggested whether or not it should have there. And I ended up maybe cutting it in half and I still kept it. And she was totally cool with that. But other than that, I really took her instruction. So it's really, and because I, I, I had this kind of have that existential conversation with myself like you're an editor you should be trusting your editor's instincts here the way that you would want your authors to trust your editing and so that's what i did during that process so interesting how i don't know how often this happens i mean there are, there are famous old publishing stories about writers who didn't like taking edits like thomas wolf right who ended up changed who you know who wrote look homeward angel and then uh ended up because people felt that his editor got so much credit for the amount that he'd cut out of that book to make it a book, uh, uh-huh. then went and rewrote those books again with a different editor to prove that he, it was him and not the editor who'd had, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. it was Maxwell Perkins who was his editor probably. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and so I wonder, do you encounter that kind of ego now today or are people more willing to accept that this is a, not accept, but value? I want that partnership. Right, I don't want it to just be me. To have an editor who really is legitimately invested in the product is incredibly valuable. So I never understood the Thomas Wolfe view, but I know that there are people who are like that. I want to say, in my time in publishing, I don't think I've encountered a writer who gave me trouble about edits. I just don't think that's happened. It happens. I think there are these various cases, but I think you're completely right. I think writers put a great deal of stock in what editors have to tell them and that they really are looking for that that relationship. And in fact, I feel like I, I see a pretty vocal majority online, in particular people who really appreciate the work their editors do. You know, when they're working for literary magazines or magazines or newspapers, they, they often kind of shout out their editor um, for that work. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if I had to give a kind of like, you know, advice sort of uh, approach here, I would say to writers, like, you should put stock in that. And and you should be looking for a working relationship with your editor. And you shouldn't be diminishing your editor in that process uh, for two very good reasons. One is that they make your work creatively stronger. And, and the second is that they are uh, in those roles for a reason. They're making decisions that have been a great deal of importance to you. So it's both like from a... a um, protocol standpoint and a creative standpoint, just the right way to do things. 
Yeah, I will say, I think that one thing I was thinking about recently was the kinds of positive feedback I get and how that affects my mood and just how it affects my writing. And I was realizing that every time I talk to my editor, I always leave the conversation happier, which is like uh-huh, pretty astonishing. Uh-huh. It's pretty yeah. astonishing because she says critical. Th- I mean, she says, you know, she makes suggestions and, and um, my editor is Kayla McKenna at Random House and she's totally wonderful. And just I always leave feeling like I can like I can do it. I mean, not in sort of like a cheerleader way, but to to sort of be buoyed by the support of great editors, I think, is just kind of a wonderful privilege. Um, and you I know, would, the funny thing to, to add perspective to that, yeah. I actually don't know her personally, but I think she's a brilliant editor. And it's like, you know, and like and I've heard that about her, like what, what, a, what a wonderful editor she is. And obviously, if that's your profession, like you really appreciate people like that to be like, you know, there there are many editors in publishing I don't know personally, but whose lists I know and whose work I know and whom I really appreciate and admire. So that's, you know, it's it's really wonderful. And that's great. I'm so glad to hear that that's the relationship that you have, because that's really the way it's supposed to be. You know, yeah, I would have to lucky. say, just to be fair, uh, that Sean McDonald, who is my editor, when I talk about that kind of partnership is exactly what I feel like I get there. Yep. Yep, absolutely. He's brilliant, obviously. So, yep, yep. We should ask you to read from your book. Yeah, I want to hear the yes, opening I've that I it. love so much. It's so fun. God, it's years. This is the beginning of No One Can Pronounce My Name. Had it descended the rubber-coated stairs of the bus and tripped as he jumped to the sidewalk below. He turned around to see if anyone had noticed, but the bus was already pulling away, leaving a dispersing cloud of smoke and people. It was a short walk from the bus stop to his house, but within ten paces he began to sweat. The heat seemed so hot here because the surroundings didn't look as if they could stand it any more than the residents. The thick roofs, many shingled and arched, the roads bracketed in deep curbs, and the trees, branches bursting and then shivering in leaves, were all suited to a cold landscape. Huddith had seen this theory proven during his first winter in Cleveland, when snow piled on top of those shingles, nestled into those curbs, and spackled the leaves in ice. But in the summer, the neighborhood seemed like a tired old man who could not endure such exertion. The house in which Huddith lived stood opposite a large baseball field. The field was surrounded by a sextet of light posts so large that they would have constituted a new seven wonders of the world had another counterpart been shoved into the ground. It seemed that a different group of boys appeared on the field every night, clad in uniforms of red, yellow, and gray polyester, or, during practice games, an assortment of sweats and mesh. Their haulers would last until 9 p.m., when the lights would shut off with an ear-splitting pucker. The field's diamond was on the opposite side of where the bus stopped and Huddett's house stood, so he didn't have to interact with the kids very often. But there were those afternoons when a ball would find its way to Huddett's side of the field, and some fragile little kid would run over to get the ball and look terrified that Huddett was going to do something awful to him. There was that quick shake of the head, a short no, and Huddett, who should have learned to look in front of himself and not at others by now, would move away. Today, thankfully, he had an uneventful walk home, and when he slid his key into the back door of his house, he had one second of peace. But as soon as he turned that key, it was time to get into costume. He wasn't sure why he put on the rose oil anymore. It had seeped into his skin by now. Teddy had already sniffed him and asked why he had started to smell like someone named the Dowager Countess, whom Huddeth didn't know, but who, according to the tinny voice that Teddy used to say her name, sounded like a very small woman. Huddeth cursed himself when he remembered that he had run out of lipstick yesterday. Luckily, he had a bit of raspberry chapstick left, and a few heavy circles around his mouth pretty much did the trick. The sari that he had been using for the past week was beautiful, a peacock blue, but he had started to smell in its folds a stale version of his own pungent body odor. 
He tipped the bottle of rose oil against his index finger and, trying not to stain the fabric, flicked small droplets onto it. He then whipped the sari into the air the way he did with his blanket when making up his bed in the morning. He sniffed the sari again. There was still the unmistakable sourness, but the rose oil now clouded it enough that his mother's old nostrils would not detect the smell. She was in her armchair in the living room, and the stereo was going. Gital Didi had brought a new batch of cassettes for her, and the latest one was Mohammed Rafi Best of Collection. That voice, normally lively, was so muffled by the old stereo speakers that it sounded as if poor Mohammed himself were trapped inside the machine. Harit, for all the sadness of the situation, had to stifle a laugh as he looked at his mother, the sentinel of a caged megastar singer. She had taken to wearing a pair of gigantic purple-rimmed sunglasses, also a gift from Gita Lidi, which made Harit's job both easier and harder. Easier because they filtered out such mistakes as his chapsticked lips, harder because they made his mother even more inhuman and unapproachable. Her eyes, even under the gossamer of burgeoning cataracts, were a pair of darting, glimmering circles that were abnormally large for her face and that had often made people mistake her for a South Indian instead of a Punjabi. But now, with her new eyewear, she had become a wax figure of herself, an effigy upon which some child had played a prank. Still, something in her defied total weakness. The way that her mottled hands rested on the ar- chair's armrests, the way that her white sari, though jaundiced with time and overuse, flowed like the raiment of Saraswati, the way that her hair, ghastly white, held its buns save for a few defiant wisps, it all emphasized her determination to mourn forever. Is that you? his mother asked in Hindi. It was always the first thing that she said. She didn't speak English anymore, and she used the informal you in a childlike manner. Harit gave his usual response, yes, mother, it is Swati. So that's my mother reading. <laughs> For the record, I, I have to hit my mute button during that reading because otherwise I would just spoil it with constant chuckling. <laughs> um, and it's so, I was reading reviews of the book and Maureen Corrigan of NPR compared you to Barbara Pym, which would make me die. Um, yeah, I, I was... <laughs> Almost, I was actually with my friend on route to a book event I was doing in Cleveland when that aired on NPR. We were in his car, and I like almost just jumped out of the car because I was like, "It doesn't get better than this." I just give up at this point. Rakesh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you, and I really appreciate your making the time. And I just again want to emphasize how much I love LitHub and how like just vital the work that you do is. I mean, it's such a you know, you publish so many wonderful writers there, and I love the excerpts, and I love the profiles, and it's just a really fantastic, well-run site. So thank you for all the work you're doing, and I I really appreciate having been here. <laughs> thank thank you. you for saying that. We we love LitHub. We are proud to be associated with them, and keep sending us those books, those ARCs. I will. <laughs> oh, yes, you'll be getting them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. Okay, okay. bye. 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 Now we're excited to talk with the host of the Dead Rabbits podcast, Brian Birnbaum and Katie Rainey. Brian's first novel, Emerald City, was just published this fall. His work has been published or is forthcoming in The Smart Set, The Collegist, Atticus Review, Slam Magazine, Political Animal, Lumina, and more. He was a finest for the Bayou Magazine's Knudsen Fiction Contest. Katie Rainey, who goes by the pen name M.K. Rainey, is a writer, teacher, and editor from Little Rock, Arkansas. She's the winner of the 2017 Bechtel Prize at Teachers and Writers Magazine, the 2017 Lazuli Literary Group Writing Contest, and the 2018 Montana Award for Fiction from Whitefish Review. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in The Collegist. Am I saying that right? 
Yep, The Collegist. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in The Collegist, 3AM Magazine, Atticus Review, Fiction Southeast, and more. She co-hosts the Dead Rabbits reading series and lives in Harlem with Brian Birnbaum and their dog. Brian and Katie, we're so glad to have you on the show. Hey, we're happy to be here. Yep, thank you. And apparently I've said the collagist wrong, Brian. I think it's the collagist. Okay. I'm just going to go out on all that. <laughs> okay. And I usually, I used to pronounce a, a deluge, deluge, and everyone used to make fun of me for that. Okay, so well. I'm, <laughs> we don't know. I'm redeeming myself right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I think I would. Matt, my friend Matt Bell um, worked on the collagist or the collagist rather for a now while. You guys now it's catching it because I can't go back and fix the damn intro. <laughs> yeah, this is better. No, yeah, <laughs> we like it this way. Right. Um, so, Dead Rabbits began as a reading series in Upper Manhattan in 2014, led by Devin Kelly, Katie Longafono, and you, Katie, all graduates of Sarah Lawrence's MFA. And you've since begun Dead Rabbits books in the last year. Uh, and the podcast came about as part of the Dead Rabbits Books Endeavor. Could you talk about starting your own small press? Yeah. Uh, so I'll just say something really quick. Um, basically, it started because I had had an agent at Writer's House. And um, and then it kind of fell through. And I was kind of just working on revisions for the next year. I didn't, I didn't look through. For another agent who my, my former agent said they were going to pass me along they didn't it was really depressing this is for uh, emerald <laughs> city you're talking about yeah yeah um so i kind of thought i had it made and then um i was kind of just doing revisions and then when i started to set to query out again um i got a text from our friend uh, my, uh a childhood friend who, whom i lived with in uh, seattle um and he was like why don't we just start our own press and we can start with your book i was like that actually sounds awesome so it kind of we were like what are we going to name it and i was kind of like Let's name it Dead Rabbits, you know, because of the because of the reading series. Can you describe where I haven't been to your readings living in Kansas City? Uh, Where are they held and like, what are they like and where's the building and all that stuff? Yeah, so they are we host them at DTUT. It's called Downtown Uptown, um, DTUT or DTUT for short in the Upper East Side, which we used to say Harlem, but it's, it's not really Harlem. It's on the edge of Harlem and the Upper East Side. Um, but we started it there because Devin and I were both living in East Harlem, and uh, we were very tired of going to Brooklyn for readings because <laughs> we don't live in Brooklyn or don't live in New York and don't really understand the distance between Harlem and Brooklyn. It's, uh, it can be on a Sunday night or a Saturday night whenever you're going to a reading and the trains aren't working as well. It can be like an hour to a two hour trek sometimes. So we're like, why not make one in our neighborhood? And this bar was totally down and they've been our home for five years and super supportive. And uh, we're kind of we're like we like to think of ourselves as not a very pretentious reading series. You know, we play we play Mad Libs during and like dirty Mad Libs, dirty Mad Libs. That's right. And mm-hmm. we you know have different genres every time. Uh, we've had different performance artists, musicians come. We've hosted visual artists, and overall, we're just kind of like I don't know a bunch of goofy people who love literature like in community every once a month. And yeah. so that's, and yet, and yeah. yet we've had incredibly like talented talented readers come and pretty well-known readers so apparently you guys are doing something right (laughs) yeah so i think not taking yourself too seriously has has helped with that yeah yeah all right so this is our editing episode and speaking of not taking yourself seriously novels are (laughs) a lot of work and investment for writers who generally do take them very seriously as i do um which is why there's a lot of anxiety around the editing process for a writer you know 
On an episode of your Dead Rabbits podcast, Brian said that he went through something like six revisions of, of his novel. So I have this question. Who edited Emerald City? Was it Katie? And if so, was it strange to work, you know, edit with somebody who's so close to you or did you treat it more or less the same as any other project? Um, I did edit. I, I mean, are you going to call me? I am one of the editors on it. But no, well, let me let me let me give it. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, then you can yeah. jump in. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, Brian definitely wrote and it wasn't just like six rewrites. It was like six complete overhauls from the first word to the last. So I've read six different novels because um, Brian's like such a prolific writer in a way that I never will be. But so over the last like five years or so, I've read six different iterations and definitely like um it's not strange to us i think to work on each other's novels we've been told we're a little odd in that capacity because most of our writer friends are like i'd never give it to my partner or my partner never reads my work until it's finished or blah 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 and like i don't know i think that's the one place where you and i have no ego where i'm just like here what do you think of this and brian will be like it's garbage (laughs) i don't say that (laughs) And I did the same for his book where I would just be like, this is not working here. Or like, I really like this thread or whatever. And then we did have, we did hire two other editors for it because, you know, at some point I was just like so involved in the process that we were like, we need somebody with a more objective eye. So we hired our friend, George Sawaya, who is a, is a poet and writer living down in Florida. And we hired his partner, Cheyenne. And she was the copy editor. And so they really dug deep into it in one of the final stages. But getting it to its sixth iteration was mostly you and I and some other people reading along our thesis advisor, things like that. Listening to you guys talk, I'm reminded of um, my first novel was edited by someone who I had gone to. I'd gone to school with her from kindergarten through 12th grade. And we knew each other really well and had read the Babysitter's Club and Anne of Green Gables together and sort of knew each other absurdly well. And then she'd ended up being an editor. And after the deal was done, um, we ran into someone from another part of publishing who was, who was British. And we, I'm afraid we still imitate, we imitate this conversation a little bit. She was sort of like, what are you two thinking? This is going to be terrible for you. And we were like, <laughs> we, we, we think this is going to be fine. So, I mean, both of you are writers as well as being editors. And I'm curious, like, as you have, edited each other and other people and and gone through this process what is it like to think about the writer side of the transaction now what kinds of mistakes do you think writers make about the way they receive edits or deal with editors uh well i'll give a really personal anecdote really a really short one and then one that's a little more universal um and hopefully they kind of conflate but uh in my early 20s i received edits with um disdain (laughs) (laughs) which is of course the right way that is what we're here to explain to everybody the disdain episode will be next (laughs) um but the thing is like two days later i'd be like oh yeah you're right (laughs) like you know um and i like i thanked people um at my launch um and like other people just more privately uh, for giving me advice even though i didn't react very well to it when i was in my early 20s Um, and I knew they were right, but, um, so, but more generally, I think that, uh, my, uh, some advice maybe that I could give that I learned in workshop, especially was that when someone points to something and says, there's something wrong with this, they'll then usually follow that up with, um, something you should do about it or what's wrong with it. Exactly. And I learned that every opinion is so specific and unique and might even be sort of ad hominem in a way 
that it's more important to look at what they're pointing at than like uh, like how to fi- how they say you should fix it. Because um, usually when people notice something that is wrong, they're usually right. That um, is so true. I got that exact same advice a long time ago from Jonathan Lethem when he came through Kansas City on tour oh, for Fortress of Solitude. And he said that exact thing. And I've always remembered that. I think it's very true. I've, uh, no, I, that, that, that's really funny you say that. I just met a, a, a writer who submitted to us, Chris Wood. Um, and he'll be happy that I'm giving a shout out. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's interviewed Lethem a lot. Um, and yeah, he, we actually talked about the same thing a little bit. Um, so yeah, it's good to corroborate that. <laughs> I wondered if we could talk just a little bit and Sugi, I'd be curious to know what this was like with your editor as well. Like I think reader, our listeners might be curious to know like what form edits are done in these days. I mean, I get, sometimes I get line edits Sometimes I get edits that are track changes. Sometimes I just have a conversation with my editor. What does that look like, like physically for Brian when you were working with Katie or the other editors and Sugi when you were working with your uh, editor? Um, well, I mean, I'll just say, yeah. I guess, working with me, I, yeah. I, I prefer making like with a pen marks on the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never did track changes for Brian. That just drives me kind of bonkers so you're doing so, line hand line edits on a, on manuscript pages that are yeah, like discussing too and i'm doing that same thing with our second novel right now i'm currently like our david hollander whose book we're publishing in may um he's like sending me <laughs> pages like every day it's pretty great because like i love his novel so much so i'm getting new pages every day so it's really fun for me but we're just like i'm not doing line edits just yet for him i'm still reading big chunks and then we like call each other on the phone or send emails and just kind of discuss it right now and, and uh so for when i was working with george it was track changes uh but that that a lot of that could have been distance i don't know if that was his preference but i i'll also just say that katie and i are almost polar opposites when it comes to editing like i would sometimes sure. go like 10 or 15 pages without seeing a note you know and then, you know, there'd be something and then we would talk about it while as like, you can see on Katie's first draft, I like, of my novel. it's just, it, it's like some, like, like, like a lunatic yeah. went over it. <laughs> like, you should see my first draft right now that I'm working through Brian's notes. They're insane. <laughs> I guess I've had all sorts of different experiences. Um, when I was in college, Jamaica Kincaid line edited a draft of Love oh. Marriage, which is pretty bananas. And a, her, a lot of her method of, I would fax her pages and then she would read them on a printout and then I would go to her office and then I would read them aloud to her and then she would verbally edit me. Yikes! Um, yeah. It, I don't was, like that. Oh no, it was, it was actually amazing. Okay. It was amazing. Um, and so that's one example. Um, and, you know, when I was a journalist, uh, especially, like, I think I learned a, a strange amount as a college journalist, having people just come over to my computer, pull up a chair next to me and rewrite me, but explain why they were doing it while I was watching, which was hugely useful. And then um, with the editor of Love Marriage, she would generally do, we would just, she would, we talked on the phone all the time, but she would also send me line notes. Um so she did both. And and when I edit people, I usually prefer pen to paper. If I have to do track changes, I can. Um, but it's not my not my preferred strategy because I feel like it um, it actually weirdly makes me write more. And I think it makes me explain too much. Mm-hmm. So I would rather 
um, use sort of the standard editing marks and, you know, work things out and have that process be clear. Because yeah, I think the other thing is that editing is also a process. Sometimes, you know, I get to a spot and I have a question then I think, well, maybe it would be good this way. Well, maybe it would be good that way. And if I do it pen to paper, the writer can see all the versions I went through and can understand that I am also just a person and uncertain. And if I do it in track changes, then I all of that kind of gets deleted and hidden. Um, and I feel, I guess, that I might as well confess to my own questioning. So yeah, I, I like I, that a lot. And I, I can commiserate with that experience experience. Cause then like a few pages later you go, Oh yeah, I see. And like, you still have that. You can't go back and erase that. I, I like that. That's true. Yeah. But wait, how, what is, what is, what, what happens with your editor? Well, I mean, I've had, the, you had the global conversations, you know, my editor is Sean McDonald at, at, at Farrar Strauss and Giroux. And Sean, I think with my last book, I've told this story many times, but, uh, the, the book is told in reverse chronology in its final version, but he read it in a version when it was in normal chronology. And he just said to me at dinner one time, he's like, this last hundred pages is really great. You should get here sooner, which is like a, <laughs> a way well, of saying, the- could you please cut these first 250 pages? And so, uh, you know, but that was like a, a, like a Cohen, you know, that I had to like figure out, you know. Um, that was helpful. And that ended up, I ended up solving by starting with them. So starting a small press is no small feat. Could you describe it to us a little bit, starting a small press and what part of this process surprised you the most, either in a positive or negative way? So our third business partner, John Kay, um, who's our operations director, he's the one who kind of put the funding to seed the whole thing, um, in the first place. And then from there, it was he, like he created the original business model. And that's how I actually said yes to coming on, because I was at first I was like, there are so many small presses and like I'm not I'm certainly not qualified for the business end. Like I could do the literary side, the editing side, the getting books and everything. But like, I don't feel comfortable, um, you know, putting together just a, another small press that doesn't, you know, necessarily know what they're doing, because I if, like if it were me and Brian alone, like we wouldn't we wouldn't totally know the business side of it. When I got the text from John to start a press, he, uh, my first move, I unilaterally just hired Katie without his consent. And, <laughs> and the first couple of days he was like, uh, okay, I don't really know this person. That's your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and then like very quickly, you know, this is a positive thing that surprised him was he was like, okay, this person's indispensable, you know? Um, Cause she's basically our publicity arm. You know what I mean? Um, but, uh, so I guess one of the more negative things for me personally is that I'm more, I'm not much of a business person as much, um, especially not even as much as Katie, like Katie's way more enterprising than me and especially John, you know, the technical stuff. Um, and like, you know, for me, it's really hard to, you know, make, force myself to do some of the social media and, you know, some, some of the more businessy aspects of it. Like I just want to write <laughs> and I can't cope with the world. So, <laughs> and that's why, that's why I write. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's, but I would say to your strength, that's where Brian comes in, where he works directly with all of the writers. Like he's the one reading all the submissions. He's the one talking people down from ledges. Like he can I, talk to writers in a way that I think. Not well, yeah, can. that's, that's been a positive surprise is that when I send back, um, you know, what's largely been rejection so far um, from submissions, I've gotten feedback. Like people have just been like, I've I've been amazed at the positivity coming from people that didn't even expect to get an email back or something like that. 
Yeah, we, so. Brian sends really detailed rejections, like giving you know feedback about the book and like what his thoughts were. And I think overall, a lot of people don't do that. As we've mentioned before, there's so many elements to a press. You you talked about how much work it is, and you know you want to make sure it's manageable. Have you been able to make any money doing this work? We want to make money in the sense that if we make money, we can keep putting money behind the books that we acquire. You know. And that's kind of like in our mission statement when, when we say publishing books that matter in ways that matter. The ways that matter is really important to us in the sense that not only are we publishing what might slip through, the, like the brilliance that might slip through the cracks of kind of mainstream publishing, um, or, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes not, but uh, also to get behind those books. Because like a lot of authors get mid-listed and we're not going to have that at our press. You know, we're not going to have a mid-list. Everyone's going to get equal attention. And if we make money, they get more attention, you know. Um, so yeah, it, it's about the money only in the sense that we want to keep building our community and, main and maintaining it and bolstering it. And I, I had talked about when you guys were on our podcast about how um, like I wanted to get into a little bit of maybe like how we can reach across the aisle. Like that's kind of how I put it, but you guys put it in a more nuanced way. So I'm going to read something um, from Benison's point of view. Benison's one of the main, one of the three main characters in my novel. His father has, is arrested early in the book for uh, defrauding the government through video relay service fraud, which is basically video relay service is a, um, uh, an interpretation, a phone, a, a telephonic uh, interpretation service for the deaf. Um, and his parents are both deaf, and so his dad owns this company that's been defrauding the government. Um, okay, so I'll just go ahead. Benison had expected outrage windward of his father's fraudulence, and his by association. After all, the majority of Near Yaddle students had matriculated for the Michelin Star Education and its attendant moral instruction. But to Near Yaddle students, cosmic forces had cut off his father's fifth, fig fifth finger of sense as if punishing him for a crime he couldn't have possibly committed before birth. And Benison sort of saw it this way in his head because, as a kid, his father had told him how the Saudis cut off the fingers of thieves. Some of the savvier students taking the sole deaf studies elective even railed against the dearth of deaf rights as some roundamary argument for absolving his father. On its surface, Benison was utterly bewildered. His father had stolen deaf, accesses, deaf access subsidies, which were not only the pillar of death rights, but were also a bill footed by taxpayer, taxpayers, the that Lady Jane's and every man Joe's. Beneath this, however, awaited the true question. What would these social canvassers know about his father? Last week, some dude standing behind him in line for deli sandwiches arrogated his attention. From under, the, from under a straight-billed mariner's hat, hologram purchase sticker winking off the heat lamps, he said, yo, Barenreich, yeah, Benison said. Just wanted to say, your dad's a certified G. He accepted daps from the future programmer. But now he wanted to pull it in for a shoulder bump. He caved to an awkward brush with the bro's clavicle. Over his shoulder, Benison saw a rankled rucksack slapped with stickers and stitched patches. Most prominent was the geometric memento mori, a slate gray sticker markered with markered over with tabs and bleeding script as opposed to spaces. The commissary band slammed on a closing note and thanked the students for lending their ears like they had had a choice in the, in the matter. Benison and the bros stood and shuffled in silence until ordering their sandwiches and thanking their lucky separations. 
Growing up, his father hadn't reserved words for the plight of the deaf, deaf population. A card-carrying Republican, he criticized the government's neglect of said plight amid hot-button issues of race and identity and oppression. He charged social justice warriors with selective hearing, thought that hammer and sickle radicals were people with poorly sublimated personal problems, people too often unrepresentative of the causes they so vehemently supported, people too too often representative of the demographics they so vehemently censured. As he got older, Benison grew weary of his father's or anyone's claim to a for a teori political insight. But by then, the facts and figures of deaf oppression were burned into his brain. At well over 50%, deaf employment was still hostage to the lack of access. ADA legislation had dragged it down from 75%, though. They were a people that opened, that opened newspapers to scathing op-eds headlined when it comes to the call of justice, Scalia, deaf and dumb. They were refused service. Before Google, deaf folks often deployed the sentence, I'll have to check with the hearing friend about that. The deaf were an unwelcome people, an, an inconvenience, included by neither God nor government. God either didn't care or cared with clever malice, and the government heeded only that which was heard. Benison and checked, and Wikipedia defined autism as a set of beliefs that include Hearing people are superior to deaf people. Deaf people should be pitied for having futile and miserable lives. Deaf people should become like hearing people as much as possible and shunning of sign languages. But the article's inchoate definition covered only half of autism's complexity. The most profound aspects of autism's prejudice were to be found within deaf culture or coming from the deaf. Certain deaf sects deplored oral culture. Deaf folks who spoke or mouthed words while signing Certain deaf sects prohib uh, prohibited interaction with hearing culture. Certain deaf sects despised hearing culture, going so far as to claim that should a cure for deafness arise, they'd never dream of making an appointment. Certain sects of deaf culture believed they were superior to hearing people. To Benison's father, who spared seldom a thought for plebeian quibbles, autism was simple, the gaping contingency in American egalitarian. So why care what one does or doesn't do? Benison thought. Thank you so much, Brian. God, that's yeah, that is that is perfect for a political um, podcast. You talked about um, on your podcast how you had checked yourself into rehab and canceled the first part of your book tour, and and the book topically dwells on um, substance abuse and on also, you know, the, the protagonist's parents are also deaf. Um, there's several other parallels as you've noted to your personal life. I'm curious about, um, whether all your work is that closely tied to your lived experience or, or how you think about that. Uh, yeah, it definitely is. Um, I obviously, you know, my parents are deaf, like you said, um, and Peter, my other main character, struggles with alcoholism and cocaine addiction. Um, and, you know, Peter, like I've said this before, he's kind of, he was kind of like a war shock of like all of my sort of like darkness. And then he kind of developed into the character he was. But, um, yeah, it was very strange to be writing this novel in a state of active addiction because I was writing about how spiritually bankrupt it is. And yet I was doing it um, <laughs> and it got worse as I got closer to publishing this book. Um, and yeah. And you know, it's not that I checked myself into rehab. I had a lot of people supporting me. I tried to get sober on my own. It didn't work. Um, and I'm really fortunate to be where I am today. Um, but yeah, it's like, 
I, I've said this before, you know, like the last line of the novel, I won't say anything, you know, explicit, but like, it's like a weird, like basic intro to like Narcotics Anonymous. And yeah, I mean, I wasn't sober when I was writing this stuff. Brian, yeah. the one thing I wanted I, – I, I heard a really great story on another podcast called The Dollop about the Deaf President Now protests at Gallaudet My, University. Was your dad involved in those? Very much so. And he's actually miffed that in the book he doesn't get that much credit. Um, but, yeah, he was very involved. <laughs> Not in Brian's book. And, 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 yeah, and, and, but, but I did use that. It, but the Deaf President Now campaign is in, is in the novel. Um, and it's kind of like a little bit of it's a little like slice of historical fiction because I reimagine it using, you know, fictional characters. And uh, uh, one of the characters is a little miffed because they didn't get as much credit for it. <laughs> as they, so. And my dad used to be like pretty upset about it. And now he just like doesn't care anymore. You know, he's just like over it. <laughs> well, it's a fantastically interesting story. And I'm sure that readers will be excited to encounter it in the book, too. Katie, it's your turn. You want to read something for us? Sure. Uh, So I'm going to read from my current novel in progress. The working title is called Sunny, and um, it takes place in Little Rock, Arkansas in the early 2000s. And um, Sunny is a 15-year-old girl who's, um, I guess, on theme, whose mother is suffering from addiction and uh, whose father is very codependent on her. She becomes kind of like the parental figure of the family, even though she's only a teenager. Let's paint a picture. Drive quick out of here. Don't stop to smell the rotting lilac petals in the cul-de-sac. Avert your eyes from neighbors with rakes piling fat lumps of brown and red into decaying mounds on lawns. Black hefty body bags, their final destination. Avoid the last children out peddling their streamer-covered bikes. Trophy moms walking their clipped corgis and sleek-coated goldens. Feed through man-made bumps in the road meant to slow you for no other reason than they want to. It's a trap. Don't fall for it. Accelerate now past big brand stores and super warehouses with pallets of toilet tissue and Irish-flavored soaps, past the dress farms and limited republics and shortened squatties and bed bath and and the existentially corrupt. Run quick through the bogs of perfume, the mini malls and promenades. Cover your eyes. Clear through the Stepford brick homes, the identical white columns, taupe walls, symmetrically bobbled Christmas trees, Chanel, Leewood, Pleasant Forest, Walnut Valley. Forget it. Run clear and head north. A city in a copse, rice paddies and churches and porn shops and trailers turn meth lab and fields left fallow at the outskirts of it all. Ride east on 630, cracked highway dappled with carry-on, garbage bags, garbage sacks, bits of tire. Wind through the quaint streets of Hillcrest and Heights of Stiff Station, past the witch's den and into downtown derelict and sooty you've caught up here i am concrete cylinders jut upwards like square waves on the horizon smokestacks on rooftops that waft exhaust that waft exhaust darkly against the graying sky as if they're shadowed souls looking for somewhere to go the sky swallows them lapping at them with a pearlescent tongue godlike and cold Abandoned buildings and old wraparound porches sit quiet behind and ahead. Some are inhabited, but their residents don't show their writhen faces for long. The sidewalks are clashing pathways of layered brick and asphalt and tree sprouts looking for a way to live. I feel overwhelmed. Where have I been? Doesn't matter. The thing about Little Rock is that it's a big town in a small city. 
I can disappear into anonymous pockets of it, isolated from Sal and Maureen's kind, by poverty lines and prejudices, but somehow I'll almost always meet someone who knows someone who knows me in whatever circle I run. You see people you don't want to see, and you can't find those you'd like to run into. Not that I'm trying to run into anyone. Out in the west side, there are art galleries awash with paintings of dogs and birds and old gazebos every little housewife thinks everyone else should find interesting. There are shops specializing in raw honey and wrought handrails for houses and handcrafted jewelry made by indigenous peoples in the woodlands north of here. There are organic foodstuffs in the latest tech shops and brand names that paper the outdoor malls, plazas at the center designed with fountains and symmetrically shaped shrubberies. It's a world I can't stand, that kind of nuclear bubble where nothing bad ever happens except sometimes they run out of your favorite pumpkin spice at Starbucks, or at least that's the facade that's presented. Scratch the surface, and every family's got their secrets, their rehabs, their sexual fetishes, and pill addictions. But I like it here. Past Midtown into downtown, even North Little Rock will do for some walking, but there's not much else there. I run amok downtown between the adult-rated children's theater, vinos, and other debaucheries. I get my fix, and not that kind of fix. I mean, I feel whole, understood. That's so, that's so great. It's so, I think, especially a treat to hear the two of you read together and to think about the relationships between your two kinds of, your two, your two works. Um, what an interesting way to think about sort of our relationships to pleasure in the world, I think, and the desire to be understood, which I feel like is a thread that I would say ties your two um, excerpts together. That's that's really great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I really enjoyed both of those readings, and we would strongly encourage our readers to, uh, first of all, go check out uh, Brian's new book, Emerald City, and go to the Dead Rabbits uh, Books website, and if you're in uh, New York, go to your reading series. Yeah, we'd love to have. We're always taking submissions for the reading series. One day, you guys will have to come read whenever you're in New York next. We will definitely. That would be yeah. That would be really fun. Be fun. Um, Brian and Katie, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a treat, and we're so glad to have had um, the chance to have a couple conversations with you. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you. Can't thanks. wait to talk again. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks a lot. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the LitHub Radio tab. If you value discussions like this one, take a few seconds give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. Happy editing. <laughs>